House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. It's nine o'clock and you're back in the House of Mystery, of course. Where else would you be? I'm Al Warren and, of course, uh, we're doing Jack the Ripper, so we've got Mr. Michael Hawley here. Hello, Al. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing good. Are you, are you still sober or are we got a problem here? Well... Uh, yes, I am sober as far as you know, and then uh, and that's all that counts, right? <laughs> You're not going to start going all weird, are you, and start screaming what? and swearing again? Right? Yeah. Uh, yes, but at least you can edit that part. Well, out, I, I couldn't yesterday. I was embarrassing yesterday. You <laughs> made our guest cry. I mean. <laughs> well, they deserve it. So, uh, but uh, good news is we have a really neat guy today, though. Yeah, yeah, it sounds interesting, and you... Uh, I heard you bored him to tears in L.A., so I guess, yeah, it's... Uh... Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Both of us are on the same uh, documentary coming up in April. So uh, we got the, we're both the ex, one of the ex, couple of the experts. So on a UFO we show? Or? Dinner. Well, almost. It's another Jack the Ripper, but... Uh... Well, that'll be interesting. <laughs> that'll be good to see, so I can kind of record it and make clippings and make fun of you, so... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really good. So, well, this looks good for me. <laughs> um, so, we'll welcome to the show Mr. Matt Lation. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Hello, Matt. Hello, Hello Matt. Mike. And if Mike said that he was sober, I would totally not take him on his word. So. No. <laughs> sober, my God. <laughs> he doesn't know what that is, you know. And, and uh, what's the? <laughs> yeah, there you go. You see, he's he's starting to already, um, you know, get there. I think I think it's called the connoisseur of craft beers is uh, what I prefer to say. Craft beer is not connoisseur. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear about Jack the Ripper and not Jack Daniels. So I'm just just <laughs> well, there you are. He's there you are. now because it's low carb. <laughs> Or Jack is ripped, yeah. you know, so that's kind of... Jack rips it really good. <laughs> okay, well, so this is interesting. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, Jack the Ripper uh, guests on before, people that have written books and done research and stuff like this. Now, your book is called Jack the Ripper Live and Uncut. Um, but um, in this book, so you, if I, if I got this right, this is a fiction book, right? Correct. Okay, so... What brought you into the world where you decided that you're going to write a fiction story around the Jack the Ripper uh, killings? Well, that's almost the story in itself. I have had a long affinity with the case. I've always been interested in it since late high school. And on, on the flip side of that, I've had many people tell me that I should write. So I finally got the kick in the pants that I needed. I attended a masterclass hosted by James Patterson. And the uh, for the class, there was a competition, well, for anyone who did his masterclass, but you could submit a hook, synopsis, and sample chapter for a story. And the first prize was collaborating with James Patterson on a book. And I started thinking of different ideas for a story to write, and The Ripper came to mind. And I was thinking about the case, and I just thought, you know what? You, you can't, you're not going to solve it unless you're there. And that total that inspired the whole, like literally the backbone of the entire story of incorporating time travel and placing my main character there as an eyewitness. So I, I wrote my sample chapter, um, at the, and it was actually chapter 37 in the book. And I wanted to 
see how the concept played out and whether I, I felt comfortable writing it. And I had two other ideas for stories, um, and I went up submitting a different one to Patterson because Patterson's not really a, a non-fiction guy. And But the more I thought about this story, the more I really wanted to write it. It was the sample chapter that was the easiest to write and the most enjoyable. And I already started doing further research to try and formulate the outline that I wanted for my story. And when I found out that I didn't win James Patterson's competition, I was very happy because, I, if anything, I got to work on the novel that I that I really wanted to work on. It was yeah, it had become a pet project. So from there, I began writing, and it it all just started from from there. But the masterclass from Patterson was the catalyst to get me finally writing a novel. But I, I'd had a long interest in the case, so you know, I thought I, I could tell a ripper tale that did the case and the time, um, the appropriate justice. I'd love to leave every chapter with a reason to continue reading. You know, I, I like to write like that, but if anything, I probably learnt that from his master class and from him as well. And you can actually tell him that uh, something that he's said that has always stayed with me, whereas he had said, if when you tell someone about a story that you have or, or show someone a piece of your writing, if someone says, oh, well, that's good, that's not the answer you want. The answer that you want is, I would like to hear more or I would like to read more. That really resonated with me. I wanted to definitely tell a story that had that type of element in it consistently. So as soon as we get into the book and get going, you know, you're just on this roller coaster and it's not letting up. So uh, I do have him to, to thank for that. And he also taught me the importance of an outline. Uh, I never outlined a story before, and the one time I tried to write a novel, I didn't even come close to finishing it. I got about 50 pages in, and I only wanted to write the good stuff, and I had no outline, and thanks to Patterson's class, I I learned the value in that. But also for a book like Live and Uncut, where there's so much research in it, and, you know, some particular uh, scenes or moments, like let's just say the Elizabeth Stride murder, for example, you know, I, I would research it and not be writing it necessarily for another six months. So it's important to Im- embed a lot of that research in my outline. So when the time came to, you know, write that chapter and place my reader at Duffield's Yard, I, I had, um, you know, so much of that content there in my outline. So it, it saved me a lot of time in terms of preparation of, to put myself there again to write it. So, Matt, when uh, when I was reading it, I did notice that your chapters are short, which I actually liked. Uh, you had a lot of them. But one of the things I remember when I was writing my fiction novel, my editor said that, uh, you know, uh, for historical fiction, uh, even though it's fiction, you better have your facts right. Because And why I say that is because my my publisher had asked me to, uh, to edit uh, one of those New York Times top ten bestseller, and it was a fiction novel on Jack the Ripper, and the author made a number of mistakes, and it just drove me batty. Yes. So the nice thing about this one, Matt, is that you could see that you had the excruciating detail research. Uh, thank you. That uh, you, were so, you were so accurate on that, So, which is one of the reasons why uh, you're going to be one of the experts on a, an upcoming uh, History Channel episode. But, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, I know the book you speak of. Uh, <laughs> it came out about three months after I finished Life and Uncut and was starting edits, and I thought, ah, oh, damn, because, you know, it, 
there hadn't really been a mainstream bestseller or, or movie for The Ripper in a long time, and that came out, and, you know, that's fine. But uh, as, as part of my research, it, it wasn't just... Um, it wasn't just about the case itself. I the, the initial research I did was on Ripper fiction. Uh, I brought up a lot of books on Amazon and IMD and movies on IMDb, and but more so the books. And I looked at what was you, if a, if it got a good review, why did people like it? If it got a bad review, why did people hate it? And I think in almost every case of a bad review, any one or two star reviews. You know, the reason was accuracy. And you know, my wife asked me when I first started writing it, um, she, she asked me about goals. And I said, well, one goal I have was I wanted to write a, a new kind of ripper tale that new, peop new people to the case could easily fall into, that there's no catch-up required or required learning before reading the book. But also it had the level of detail that you know, people that were deeper into ripperology and had a greater knowledge of the case that they they, they could appreciate the, the detail that that was put into the book and and therefore you know enjoy not only the amount of truth that is in it but how it is weaved into the fiction and, and in a way kind of made responsible for each other you know that was because, you know, what I was doing was, you know, I don't think I wouldn't classify my book as um, historical fiction. I would probably classify it as a thriller more than anything else. Um, it's a book of many genres. <laughs> it definitely has horror elements and, right, and sci-fi right. and so on. But when people ask me, I sort of say sort of at the backbone of all of this is, is a thriller, thus the, the shorter, you know, fast-paced chapters. So, you know, I, I wanted to... In a way, right, yeah, a mainstream ripper story that, that could still provide that, you know, the appropriate education, um, on the, you know, Whitechapel at the time, but also, you know, yeah, remain faithful to the case. It was, it was important to me. What I also liked is that you have pictures and photo or pictures and images in your chapters, and I wasn't prepared for that for a fiction novel, but it was like very appropriate, especially when, yeah, at the beginning when uh, these were clues for your protagonist to figure it out. Yeah, I, I hope that some of that survives the editorial process because currently, like, um, you know, what you read was the self-published iteration of the story. Um, you know, it's currently going out on submission to publishing houses. So, um, yeah, every image was vetted uh, or, you know, per, um, personally created like the, the uh, map of Miller's Court and the set, more or less the census listing everybody in it. That was, I based that on other information I had, but I, I drew the whole thing myself. Um, and, and the, the scrumpled up piece of paper with the, <laughs> with the suspects written on it, I actually, you know, typed that onto a piece of paper and then scrunched it up myself and, and scanned it. So yeah, I, I wanted to add a little bit of that in there. I don't, like I said, I don't know how much of it's going to survive. But um, I remember reaching out to Philip Hutchinson um, just after the reading, uh, going through, you know, completing the book and making sure I had, you know, copyrights on. You know, I had the, I wasn't violating anything. And there was a couple of images where he suggested to, you know, give people props for for the image I used and so on. And um, he was very helpful in that regard. I've always appreciated that. This is really the. Um 
the true scene of the Jack the Ripper murders. Like, this is all very true to life. Like, it's set in the right locations, and, and the, the murders are the exact murders, but you've sort of put a fictional character, uh, investigative reporter, I believe, on, on the case. Yeah, correct. The, the the one thing I wanted to really, basically when I sat down and looked at this, I thought, well, my story's going to involve time travel and it's going to involve Jack the Ripper and they're both things that have been well, it's well trodden ground in fiction. So I, I wanted to, you've got to be unique. You've got to offer something fresh when, when you're you know, using tropes that are, as popular as those. So I think, you know, my story creates a very unique form of time travel uh, and it places my main character, my investigative reporter, Carl Axford, you know, in Whitechapel. But, yeah, he has the freedom of, you know, somebody like uh, Patrick Swayze in Ghost. You know, he can go anywhere. He can go through walls and doors and see anything and not be detected. And and I thought, I, I like this because if he was a live character, he you know, he's got to look around the corner, you know, a street corner or something like that. You know, there has to be some distance. Whereas, you know, with this type of time travel or projection, as I call it, with projection created, it gives him a, a limitless view and on and any vantage point he wants. So I can take my reader as close as they want to get. You know, and I don't want to gross people out either. Um, you know, I, I want, but I do want people to be be scared. Absolutely, you know, these were terrifying. What happened, and you know, I, I wanted to place them a lot closer than anything that's ever put in there before. How did you come up with the character Carl Axford? Like, where where does that come from for you? And and how much how much of yourself is in that character? Oh yeah, Carl Axford and I totally live vicariously through each other. <laughs> there, there's some thing there's some things that I put in in the book about Axford in both books. Uh, I have I wrote a sequel, um, and there's a lot of characteristics that we have in common. I originally wanted to be a journalist, lady in high school, but then the, an IT career came calling and I just thought that that might be a little bit more flexible in terms of you know, where society is going to head, where technology is going to head. Plus, I hate editing. And, and here I am, you know, 30 years later, I still hate editing. Are you saying you consider yourself sarcastic like your uh, protagonist here? No, I'm not sarcastic at all, Mike. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's, yeah, uh, even the, the luggage story at the airport where I introduce him, uh, you know, I've gone through something like that. You know, I, and I actually saw somebody with that luggage. I, I didn't have the courage to, to say the line that he said, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it, it's, yeah, that little musing, that observation of his is something I've made myself. Um, yeah, th- th- there's definitely some similarities, but, I mean, he is his own man. I mean, you've, I've, I've got to give him his own identity in that regard. But I know one thing that I, I've done and people have found it interesting, but some people have liked it, some people haven't, but I'm not very descriptive of physically what he looks like. So, you know, in a way, Carl Axford's what you want him to be. And I remember I posted on a Facebook group of how, what age did you think Carl was? And I got everything from 21. Uh, some people said late 40s. And yeah, to me, Carl's right in the middle of that. He's about 30. He's 30 years old, 31. So um, yeah, he's, I guess, a younger version of myself than he's not like me. He's like a younger version of me. I wrote uh, actually as part of my agent's 
notes. I, I rewrote a chapter um, about a week ago with accident in it, and it was the first time I wrote anything with accident for nearly two years. And I've got to say, it was just like putting a comfy pair of slippers on. Uh, I, I just love writing the guy. Um, you know, I, I, I try to present him as a likable character, or, although I think he's not very, I don't think he's that likable at the start, but I think he's someone that grows on you and, and you wind up rooting for him in the end. Right. That's how I, that's when, it, when he first made that comment to that lady at the airport, <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to like <laughs> this guy. <laughs> and that's it. That, that, it's, I know it's a sort of a, a polarizing moment where some people go, oh, yes. Oh, she had that coming. And then there's other people, yeah, they'll be like, well, that's a bit, that's a bit forward, <laughs> saying something like that. So, yeah, I, I, I love writing all the characters in these stories and, and the, se- the sequel actually, um, introduced some other really special characters again that I just love writing, but, um, writing, writing a second story is also great because you just have that feel of getting the band back together almost the entire time that you're writing the story. So. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I love Axford. I've had great feedback about him. And yeah, I, I really hope that, you know, I can write the full series that I do intend to regarding this guy because there, there is a character evolution. Like this, this is one of those series where, you know, there is interlacing between the stories and my character does go on a development arc. You know, he's not like a cut out character you know, among stories. And so, you know, he, he'll age. He, he will, uh, he also in the second book suffers PTSD from the, the Ripper case. You know, I really wanted to, hum- oh. yeah, yeah. I really wanted to humanize the experience that, that he has. Um, and, and yeah, people are surprised in the second book that the very first story has him in a, like a group therapy, um, get together. So it's so, uh, an assembly of, I guess, of guys that have trouble um, coping with whatever trauma they have, and, and he's one of the people there, yeah. So that people were very surprised because he's a confident character, but I, I wanted to humanise what he goes through. I, I don't like time travel stories that, that are like, oops, we, we, we messed up, but, hey, everyone's all right, and history's not really bumped that much as a result. You know, I, I wanted this to come with consequences. You know, there, there is an emotional toll, you know, for, for what he had to endure and what he had to witness. You know, that, that would be a lot for anybody, I think. And I didn't get to really delve into that in the book, like post-case. I did a little bit during the case, but post-case, not so much, but I, I do in the, the second book. Well, how do you experience your character then? How do you experience... Um, Carl Axford, is this, is, is, do you hear his voice in your head or do you see him or how does that work for you? Sometimes. Yeah, I, I sometimes feel Carl's a guy I'd love to just sit down and have a beer with. I think he would be, he would be good company and he'd be smart company. But, uh, but I don't think he'd be too cocky. You know, I, I, um, I, I do definitely try to put myself in his shoes when I write these things. So, you know, in a way it's, yeah, writing it as if uh, I'm there myself. Uh, and in a way you have to. You, you have to put yourself in, in your MC's place uh, and be able to, you know, feel what they feel in that moment. And usually when, I, when it came to some of the, the harder chapters to write, not harder in terms of, 
professionally, but just like the emotional chapters, I guess. When it came to writing the chapters that featured murders, for example, you know, I, I would sort of step back from the laptop for a bit and just think about things and play out what I had in mind for that chapter or that scene. And, and then I would, you know, then I'd, I'd get to the typewriter and go. But no, I would, so a lot of chapters for Axford, I would play out in my own head first. And in a way, yeah, I would put myself in his place and I'd be thinking, well, how would I feel if, if I was, you know, witnessing this or experiencing that? Does that, does that ever kind of, um, make you feel a little bit vulnerable when you share a lot of your own feelings in a book where anybody can read and not only can anybody just pick it up and read it, but they can, uh, share what they think of it or some, maybe something that's important to you. Um, and they could say something really mean online nowadays. Sure. Well, there's always going to be haters. I was definitely resigned to that when I wrote the book. Ironically, I haven't really had any. Um, I think the only hater I ever had um, dissed on me because I don't live in London. Apparently, I'm not qualified to write the story because I don't live in London. That's Michael. Don't worry about him. <laughs> you know, well, I, I, I said it privately. I didn't know you knew. I said that. What's, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, it's, it's fair enough to say that, but I, in a way, it's not, you know, because uh, especially because a lot of the murder sites are now very different. So, you know, seeing Mitre Square, for example, these days is not going to, you know, bring me into writing Mitre Square in 1888 at all. So, you know, when you're writing something, in, when you're writing something in a different era, I've never subscribed to you, you have to live there or you should have been there kind of thing. If your research is good enough, I mean, well, for example, when I, my book was reviewed by the, the Whitechapel Society and from Ripperologist magazine, the two people from it, um, had, one had assumed I did live in London. And the other asked the question in an interview with me. They said, well, you've, you've obviously been, you know, spent a lot of time in London to research and write this book. And I shook my head and I said, I'm sorry. I, I have not never been to London before. I've never spent a single day there. But thankfully with the internet and the tools that we have, I'm able, you know, I was able to research it thoroughly enough to, you know, I believe to, you know, put forward a convincing you know, story in that regard, but I am conscious of some of the things that I that I put in in my story. Uh, sort of coming back to that, you know, I don't want, you know, but but by the same token, I I don't want to, you know, sail on the course of political correctness and and have that change my own voice in in terms of the stories I want to tell. I don't think anything I, I put in the stories is controversial in any way, um, but if somebody you know doesn't like it, obviously. You know, I welcome the dialogue. Yeah, you know, I would never say to someone, you know, don't, you know, if you hate my book, I don't want to hear from you because you fail to want to become a better writer, I think. You know, I'm, as I said, you don't have to write to the masses, but, you know, there's things that, you, you know, you should become mindful of. But thankfully, I haven't really had to, you know, any hate or, or disdain for the, the story that I told with, with Axford there. So when you did your research for this, um, not only for the timing of in the late 1800s in London and getting the uh, 
let's say the uh, the attitudes of people and the expressions and how they dressed, and you, you kind of get the whole atmosphere. Did did you also look to other um, Ripper writers that were in the true crime area and kind of their theories of who they thought it would be and how the murders happened and stuff? Did you go through that whole series as well, or did you avoid those? I have a ton of books um, in terms for research for you know for the area for for um, the the case itself. I have many books that that don't even involve the Ripper, but they're about the you know, conditions in the East End, um, like People people of the Abyss um, by Jack London. I read that and I've, you know, I, I basically, yeah, I, I expanded my research out to um, some of the best ripperologists in the, in the, that are around and, and their material. Um, I didn't really talk to um, many or any about it, part, partially because I think ripper fiction doesn't have the same traction as, you know, if I told them, hey, I'm writing a book, um, you know, about Aaron Kosminski as a suspect and, and I need your take on that. Well, firstly, if it's someone that doesn't think that it's him, then they're, they're, all they're going to do is tell me why it's not. So, no, I, I didn't on account that, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of a fiction writer trying to carve my way out. But if I did have questions on, on some things, there were people I went to. Um, some people were extremely helpful. Some people... We're not, none in ripperology, I do want to clarify that. Anybody that I approached in ripperology was very helpful. Now, the, the one person I uh, truly wasn't helpful at all was um, the leading autobiographer of the Beatles. Um, as you know, there's a couple of chapters that actually feature the Beatles in my book. That The stuff that I got from him wasn't very helpful at all. I can actually say that I got more help from a busker than, than I did from than the Beatles' leading biographer. Research can take you to some strange places, up. So, and uh, my book did for me. There's almost a book behind the book in terms of some of the research and and stories. Did you, in your head, um, ahead of time, when you were writing this, kind of know how it was going to end, or know who the the Ripper was going to be in your mind, or did that just not matter to you? Oh no, it totally mattered. I, I for me, I wanted to have, as I mentioned, formulate that outline, uh, a lot of it before I even got started because, and part of that is obviously presenting whatever theory I wanted to have on, on, on who the Ripple was and then how they got away with it, all those sorts of things. And I, you know, listed a lot of questions for myself like that, you know, like some, there's so many you know, gray areas in the case, you know, and you've got to wonder, well, you know, how can I have a plot that envelops this? So my first you know, port of call was trying to establish, you know, what my theory, Ripper theory, was going to be, whether I wanted it to follow something, you know, that was common. I think I vowed not to involve a, a royal or Freemason conspiracy because that's what everybody does. I wanted to, I, but I did want to um, bring into the spotlight, you know, people that are connected to, to this case that deserve you know, probably a greater spotlight than, than the Royal Conspiracy. And I wanted to bring up people that were interesting worth talking about. And I remember a friend asking me, I'd written about, at the, this point, I'd written about 60% of the book, and he said to me, do you believe your theory on who Jack the Ripper is? I said, no. And he said, why not? Said, because it's a work of fiction. 
if I was writing a textbook, <laughs> you know, I, I don't get the same liberties if I'm writing a textbook. I said, but I'm not. I'm writing, you know, a ripper tale. I want to make it interesting. And this was the kind of plot that I came out with. And, you know, the, what I described was I had several beats, different beats uh, of the plot that I had in terms of who it was and other, other notions. But I, the thing that strung it together was the Gorston Street Graffito. And I worked on how I was going to involve that in the story. And I mean, I'm not, not going to give any spoilers. I worked on that for two and a half weeks alone, just that, just coming up with how it was going to fit and how it was going to be a crucial part of the case that Axford has to solve. You know, and, and, I'm, and, you know, revealing, you know, the problems that he's up against other than just identifying the Ripper. You even have a, a couple of suspects kind of knowing each other there. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to do that too because the East End's not, you know, it's not, it's sort of a large place, but in a way not. Everyone says it's a small world, but also especially given the origins of some of the characters, you know, some characters are of similar background. So I, I wanted to try and establish ways of, you know, having that interconnectivity, you know, not just, you know, pe- people are connected by the Freemasons. You know, there's other ways that we can bring people together in a story. And, you know, my, the way I did it was fictional, but very rational. So, you know, I, I wanted to create a, you know, like a community for, for, you know, that supported, you know, uh, new immigrants into London. And that's how two of my characters met uh, in the story. But where they met was very real. Where they would go after every meeting was very real. And yeah, I, I, um, that again, that was, taking some plot beats and putting that together and, and then trying to work out um, how to string it together. And when I had that eureka moment where I did the then and now as to where they would go um, after the synagogue and and where and what that place is today, when I saw the name of it, I just lit up and said, okay, I have to make this fit. This is a really pl- – it's plausible but also a, – a, I thought an intelligent way of making it fit. Very crafty. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> well, to, to let you know, um, I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler. When I, when David Green from Ripologist Magazine was reading it, he reached out to me and told me that he was loving the book, but he once learning that the Gorston Street Graffito was an anagram, he was trying to work it out prior because apparently he's um, an anagram champion, an anagram king. And I thought, well, good luck. <laughs> I didn't think he would. And, and he did. When he, when he finally got to it, he told me it was just, it was anagram bliss. He, he loved it. Did you use a lot of the actual evidence, like, you know, that was brought up and it's been talked about on movies and books and stuff, like the, um, like the Ripper letters and things like that? Did you, did you use all that? Yeah, I, I used the Dear Boss letter, um, probably not as intricately as it probably could have. But again, I, I sort of worked with what I would consider a great parameter in the case, and that is there was another letter that's affectionately referred to as the threatening letter. And nobody has I, – I don't think anyone's sure whether it was written by the Ripper or not. I think it was assumed it wasn't only on account of we still don't know who the recipient of the 
the threatening letter was, who it was um, addressed to. So I wanted to work that into my story. When I when I read the contents of that, I thought, oh, that's just that that's great. I can really work that into my you know again making it responsible for the fiction and the fiction responsible for for fact. And when I worked the threatening letter, yeah, because I, I, you know, I, anything that was that's grayer in the Ripper case, I saw as fair game. Because if you say, well, it's this, no one can really tell you it's not <laughs> because it's not proven. But anything that's obviously black and white, I, I tried to adhere to. But yeah, I, I took the threatening letter and um, went to town with that. I, I made sure that, that it featured. Um, but also, yeah, I'm, you know, working with other, other things like the Maybrick Diary and the Maybrick Watch. Um, but uh, the Gorston Street Graffito, um, the, the piece of uh, Catherine Eddowes' apron that was torn off and, and left at the side of the, yeah, I wanted to include those type of things. Again, I'm, I really like when you, you're doing research and you find ways that you can braid it into the story you're telling. And as I mentioned, make, make the fact responsible for, for the fiction, the fiction, like make them, you know, just intertwined and responsible for each other. I think there's just very high reward in that. And the more you can do it, the better. You know, it's not a case of oh, intertwining like three or four things about the case in the whole story. There's there's a whole lot there. I remember a reader who who loves the case, and she said to me, you know, um, after about two thirds of the way through the book, she just forgot. She just began to forget what was truth anymore. And I said, well, that's what I like to hear. So, um, yeah, I, I take I take great pride in trying to include as mu- as much as I can for for yeah. The ripperologists and the people that are synonymous with the case, but also people that are new. You know, it's important they learn these things too. You know, a lot of people know about the Dear Boss letter. That's that's a slam dunk when it comes to discussing evidence about the case. But hardly anybody's ever heard of the the, threat, the threatening letter. And when I did compare handwriting on those, they are pretty similar. So I thought it was um, it was a liberty I could I could take and include it in my story. Well, what's nice about that also, two things. One is that your story doesn't get bogged down by history. I mean, you really do a great job at that. But also, 2018, the Ripper community gave you uh, Jack Ripper Fiction Book of the Year. So that's hey, thank you. Well, you and I are uh, what I refer to as Class of 2018, because that you you, you won right. for for your Tumblety book, suspect and. Um, so, Al, did you did you see how I sucked him into this? How well I did? Oh, yeah. I, I, I so could, I so could have made this question all about me, but no, Mike. I I, <laughs> uh, I, I know right. I always feel compelled to, to mention that you won um, the, the much more um, illustrious nonfiction volume. But yes, I, I I had good competition that year. I had some brilliant books that I was up against. You did, uh, yeah. I. I was completely, you know, flattered and uh, without sound, sounding cliche, you know, it was the dream come true. As I mentioned, I wanted to write something that Ripperology would like and you know, not cast out like the the story that you were asked to review, Mike. <laughs> so, you know, no, I, I wanted something that was truly mainstream, but it, it did satisfy whatever level of knowledge you have on the case. So, now to receive that award, I I display it proudly in my house. It's one of the first things you see when you when you walk in, and it's always meant a lot to me and still does. 
It was kind of strange, uh, Matt, when we were in Los Angeles, Los Angeles together. You were carrying that video everywhere. I didn't get that part, though. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I had to check it in. I couldn't take it on the flight because it is sharp at one end, and so it was considered lethal. But one story I will tell, which is true, I, I was once I, I heard that I had it, and it was in the mail and everything like that. I was just climbing the walls, and it was the fir- first and only time that I know of when. Um, I missed the delivery, and therefore it went back to the post office. So I drove to the post office to get it, and they didn't have it yet because the truck was still out. And and I, I was just so impatient. I just I just wanted that moment of just having it in my hands, um, and, and you know that, right. that that moment, as you know what I mean. And you'd had that already. Um, he, you you'd already posted it like two days ago. Oh yeah, here I am. <laughs> so no, I, I that that I think just made me even more anxious. It's something that, that meant a lot to me. So you know, when the voting when and all that was was being put forward, you know, I was I was monitoring that. I cared. You know, I really wanted to. You know, I wanted to take it out. Um, I was flattered that I got to this point in the first place. But um, once you see that your story has the potential for that type of appreciation, especially from some people who whose books I've bought and, and you know read as part of research, you know, voting for my story. I mean that's surreal. It really is. It's something that I had not even conceived when I first started writing this book. So, you know, it was uh, yeah, I was just on cloud nine and, and still am to a, you know to agree because it's it's something that can can never be taken from me. And it's something I'll always have and you know, unfortunately, it came just after the book was taken out of publication because of because <laughs> of its pursuit, pursuit yeah. for mainstream. Um, and I remember even asking at the time. I said, "My my book's not published anymore. It's it's this is a posthumous award for a book. Are you sure you want it to be, you know, yeah. to still be included?" But no, I, I was assured that it was published that year. People have read it that year, and. You know, in a way, it's you know, it's part of the the brag for me. It's what makes it more amazing. It it was only out for six months of of that year, but it it made you know quite an impact. It's something that I'll never forget. Did you get arrested for um, chasing the postal driver down in his truck? What <laughs> <laughs> post? You went postal. right. Exactly. I was I was waiting for that. I really. It's not surprising that you you put it out there, Mike. Um, no, I. Um, no, I did not, but um, it, it had a, away with it. the thought had occurred to me. I thought of stalking the truck like Wiley Coyote style yeah. um, and bringing the truck down and, and then trying to get my award that way. But no, I patiently waited until the next morning, but I turned up to the post office five minutes after it opened because <laughs> I wanted my damn award. <laughs> so um, I was just, I was, I really was like super. Um, excited, and if this goes mainstream and more happens to it, that's great. But I don't think anything will, you know, replace this because you know I tell writers that you know from my you know from my former agency and my current you know people I know now um, that there's a thing called imposter syndrome where you you know where a writer feels that they they don't have it or they can't write or tell good enough stories. And that brief time that I was self-published with the reception I received and award and everything like that, I I don't get imposter syndrome. 
at all. You know, if an editor passes on my book, I don't care. You know, it's, well, that's the way it is. I had one editor who I went extremely close with and it was a shame because he was the number one draft pick for, and for good reason. He, he edits like some of the best thrillers and, and mysteries out there. Um, but because of the sci-fi and speculative elements, he couldn't sign it. But he said if he didn't have those, he would have. But the self-published part and feedback from people I'd never met before who have read my book, feedback from virology, feedback from, you know, around everywhere, it just made me feel like, okay, I, I can tell stories. I should stick with this. And the award is just like at the very forefront of that belief. So, Matt, the question is, like, both Al and I, we're, we're nonfiction to the core. Right. Have you ever, because you did research so much, have you ever thought about doing nonfiction, or are you going to stick with the fiction? Sticking with the fiction because I'm a fiction writer. I, as I mentioned, I wrote a sequel, which is not related to The Ripper at all. Um, but there is, and I, I also wrote um, a fantasy-based um, whodunit, so Agatha Christie meets Game of Thrones. Uh, and again, it's, I think at my core, I, I like to tell thrilling stories in a way, but um, I, I get enjoyment out of those. I, I haven't really given much credence to writing nonfiction. To, to be honest, I, I appreciate writers who do it, um, who take that you know, investment in time and effort to, to you know, present research and facts. The reason why I like your book is because it's not, you're not putting Tumble to you as, as the man. He's not the ripper. You're basically presenting what you've learned about him and therefore what we need to learn about him and other, other suspect right. books that are out there that are like that. So, you know, I, I totally, you know, like appreciate that side of it. But no, I, I, I like, you know, I'm, if the history channel comes calling, sure, I'll, I'll appear on it, but. But no, I don't think I, I would write the nonfiction. I have thought of another idea for another ripper rip fiction story, but it's one of about 14 ideas for stories that I have right now, and it's probably about ninth on my list. So uh, I don't think I'll be getting to it anytime soon, not unless I can, you know, God forbid, make an actual career out of this. That would be that would be nice. But it, yeah, I did have an idea for another ripper fiction. I would love to write another ripper fiction, but not using the the foundations that I had with Live and Uncut. This would be a totally different story, a different you know, perspective, and also um, and, and probably more closer to, to non-fiction on account that the main character was, was set in the, in the time um, during 1888. So, you know, it's not um, you know, a, a current uh, or, or present-day person going going back to experience this. Make sure you read my next book first. No one's going to read your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you have a certain amount of freedom uh, doing it your way, like That's doing true. historical fiction in a sense, because you can take the all the things you do or we know in general for uh, around a scene or crime, a time, you can put all that in there. It can be very real, yeah. but you can layer it with a character or two or whatever it takes and you have a freedom with that. Like um, mm-hmm. with what Mike writes or, and even myself, it's kind of, it is what it is. Our characters have done what they've done and that's it. But you can actually weave your own story in amongst the true story. In, in terms of storytelling, absolutely. 
But I also think, <laughs> I also think ironically, non-fiction sto- uh, books or stories come under greater scrutiny because yeah. because of the fact checking. With fiction, you know, there's some fact checking, as I mentioned. Some people don't like inaccuracies, but you know, the, the writer can always lean back on and say, you know, hey, it's a work of fiction. You know, I, I I try not to do that. I mean, obviously I can, but you're right. I, I get that creative license to to take you know take this in different places to what a nonfiction writer could. But as I mentioned, because ripperology, you know, is a is an industry where facts is are just so important, and just one um you know one thing that's not inaccurate. But all of a sudden, because it's written down and it's there, it's something that's just going to come back again and again and again, and it frustrates people because they know it's not true and they just have to keep, you know, arguing the provenance of, of you know, some things that people believe, you know, oh, this person was the ripper or this piece of evidence is the smoking gun we're all after. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's much, it's a much harder, to me, it, it's a double-edged sword because, in non-fiction, I think you're, you come under greater scrutiny. But as a fiction writer, you're sort of met by, you, you're kind of on the outer, you know, uh, because, you know, this is a, a, a group or a community that's driven by facts. And you tell people, hey, I wrote a fiction book, and sort of the roll of the eyes, and because, you know, the ripper is, isn't always represented well in fiction. I, I always refer to it as taking Jack's name in vain. Yeah, some people, you know, stick the ripper on a book because it's gonna, you know, it's, it's got a better chance of selling if his name's in it. You know, I, I didn't want to do that. I, I want, even though I called the book Jack the Ripper Live and Uncut, but that, that, that's actually a misunderstanding of the algorithms of Amazon and the use of keywords. I thought I needed that in the title for people to look it up. So my, my bad. Uh, so, and I always refer to and I always refer to the story as live and uncut. You know, I don't refer to it as Jack the Ripper live and uncut. So much of it is, is driven by the pursuit or thirst or, or hunger of facts. And you tell someone you wrote a, a fiction story, people are going to feel like, well, they're not really going to learn anything from it. And, you know, I hope my book's a little, a little different in that regard because, you know, it is fiction, but there's a lot to take away from it. And, you know, like I've re- one thing I received praise on was referring to the, the dock fires in London, you know, the, the night of um, Polly Nichols' murder. You know, a lot of people said, well, you know, they knew right. very little about the dock fires or they hadn't heard about the dock fires or they heard about them and didn't know it was the same night. So, you know, it, it comes back to that goal I had. I wanted something that, you know, that could educate someone even if they're experienced or if they're experienced, they at least saw a lot of this as, not so much in jokes, but you know, references that the experts get, kind of thing. Right, those dock fires made the the evening look like a glow, like they're from right, hell. Exactly. <laughs> and ironically, the, the chapter that I, I rewrote last week involved the dock fires. So, yeah, oh, okay. I really enjoyed uh, writing it because my my agent told me that you know it was a bit of an info dump. She she liked the inclusion of the dock fires, but she wanted me to change the story to either some kind of flashback or something where Axford learns about the dock fires and then translate and then place him back right right in the thick of it. And I thought, so I did. I, I, wrote, I rewrote this chapter. So a lot of the info dump is actually coming from a professor giving a lecture and Axford is watching it, you know, online. And, 
Um, so he, yeah, then it becomes this little personal, you know, wager of his where he wants to now prove the professor wrong and see that whether the, the dock fires were, uh, lit by the Ripper or not. So it, it was cool. How coincidental, how coincidental that, uh, I found out that true story when, uh, Tumbley was, uh, on, in a, on his deathbed, that area, he lit that on fire. Oh God. I'm telling you, he did. It's wow. amazing. Yeah, he, he could be he could be pinned for the dark fires if not the murder. <laughs> there you go. Oh, see. It's part of the he did something. So someone picks up the book. Uh, they pick up live and uncut, and they read it. At the end of it, um, was there something you hoped that they took away from the book? As a thriller writer, priority one is I hope my reader was entertained. Um, and that's that's probably sounds a little superficial, but as a thriller writer. That is the end game um, in what you write. You know, I, I hoped if it was somebody that was new to all this that they they came away not only thinking about the Ripper a little more, but also they were exposed to people and evidence in the case that that's not as prominent as what you see in in TV shows or movies, you know, or, or other you know books that, that represent the case. You know, I wanted to offer some some new things or education on people or things that that you know they they might not have seen before, and I hope that that's realised. But also, I, I like to place the notion, you know, like limbo. I think is a great concept. You know, I, I like the idea of you know being sent to somewhere and and be you know the as I mentioned the original question I put in my head was the the notion was. The only way we'll ever know is if we're there. And so I wanted to put a guy there and then have people think about other cases as well. That's why the last chapter almost screams out that there's going <laughs> to be a sequel because, you know, Jen offers up, you know, some, some dates or places where she wants to go on holiday and Axford's just dismissing it all immediately. But, you know, those name and dates are, are significant. You know, one of them is, the death of Tupac. One of them is the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. You know, one of them is the assassination of Kennedy. So, you know, I, I want people thinking, you know, you know, this is a cool idea. I'd love to see how this would play out in, in other cases or or other events in history, for sure. You mean Tupac's dead? I didn't say that. I said the date. Of, okay, no, I did say his death. Um, Tupac's, in parentheses, alleged Yes. Uh, <laughs> ironically, my second book has that in it. <laughs> there we go. See, now we know. Yeah, the, uh, a very brief synopsis. The second one involves the deaths of um, about six, I think it's six musicians that all um, their deaths have been deemed accidental or suspicious, and I link them all to a common cause and offer up a present-day target. So... Um, that that's yeah that's that's where I'm headed in in book three. But I have five stories completely mapped out. I literally know the last chapter of my last story and and how it's all going to end. So I as I mentioned, I've written two, but I and I've I started writing the third, but then I realised I needed to diversify. I couldn't just put all my eggs in one basket. So I wrote Murder Between Realms, which was my fantasy phase two done it. Um, and that's also been about to be shopped out as well with with this. 
Um, we're waiting at the moment. Obviously, A, I'm making some changes as per my agent notes, but also once the, the History Channel show drops, which looks like it might be in a couple of weeks now, Mike, we'll see. Right, um, probably the first or second week of April, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Because um, I saw the last, the latest one that's coming out in next week is the Summerton Man, and I haven't said that this to anybody yet. But at the end of my um, recording with the History Channel, I, I had some time left, and being of Australian origin, they Jeff started asking me a few questions about the Summerton Man. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And after a few questions, I just looked at him and said, "Is the camera still rolling?" And he nodded with a smile, and so I can't guarantee that I'm going to be. Oh, that'd be cool. It would be amazing, but but um, I can't. I mean, I haven't put it on social media or anything because it's not a guarantee. The Ripper show, Ripper episode is a guarantee. The the Summerton Man, not so much. But next week, I'll definitely be watching. And yes. And if um, you know, if I, if my ugly mug comes on the screen for a few seconds, and I'll be letting everyone know that if you're Want to catch Matt Lation for 10 seconds out of an hour show? <laughs> yeah, tune in to, to Lawrence and History's Greatest Mysteries um, for, for the Summerton Man episode. So how do people get a hold of you? Like, what do you like to do? Do you like to interact on social media with, with readers? Or do you have a website? Um, let's give out your information. Um, I appreciate that. I do. Um, I, I definitely love engaging with readers. A lot of people will say, you know, they've... Um, you know, reached out to me, uh, you know, after reading the story and I stay in contact with people, you know, uh, and some people I even go back to to proofread, you know, new, new stuff that I, that I write. So, you know, some people come near and dear. So, uh, I'm, I am on Facebook. There is Matt Lation, L-E-Y-S-H-O-N. Uh, there is a Matthew Lation as well, but that's probably more my personal one. The Matt Lation is supposed to be my writer one, but I do put some personal there too. Uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. My Twitter handle is at mlationauth, A-U-T-H at the end. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter as well. I'm on Instagram, but I've only ever posted twice on Instagram, so I don't, uh, I will barely give that out. But my website is www.matt-lation.com. And as I mentioned, the book is is out of publication, unfortunately. But uh, if people do reach out to me, I'm still inclined to, you know, send somebody a, a PDF copy of it because I, I still like to gain readership and seek further opinions as well from readers. Um, uh, until I'm signed, I'm I'm not bound by by anything to to not be able to share it with people who want to read it. So I I welcome any anyone who who would want to. Great. We'll have that up on our website as well, so people can find you with one click. Make it easy I appreciate for them. that. And uh, I'll tell you, it's been a great conversation, and uh, good luck in the future with all this. So, Thank you so much. I've, I've had a great time talking with you guys. I'm sure we could easily go for another two or three hours, but yeah, uh, what, time we, yeah, what time we've had, I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I, I love the questions as well. Yeah, Thanks, great guys. speaking with you, Matt. Great speaking with you. Yes, great. Catch up with you too, Mike. So the book is called Live and Uncut, Jack the Ripper. And the author is Mr. Matt Mason. Thank you for being here. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.